Hello, and welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. This episode is brought to you by you. Thank you to those of you who have become patrons of the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. For less than the cost of a dive tank refill or a cup of coffee, you can help keep the podcast episodes coming. There's also some fun bonuses for patrons, so be sure to check those out at patreon.com backslash marine bio life. That's patreon.com backslash marine bio life. Hello, mermaids, pirates, ocean lovers, and land lovers. Welcome to today's show. Question, which type of vegetable is banned on ships? Leeks. How do you make a mermaid, pirate, ocean lover, or even land lover feel better? Give them some vitamin C. My guest today is Melissa Pappas, marine biologist and scientific illustrator. We cover a lot in today's episode, including giant clams, research in the Red Sea and the Great Barrier Reef, corals, and imposter syndrome. Melissa shares her frontline experience studying climate change and discusses the importance of her endeavor to bring the emerging creatives of science into the world. At the end of the episode, Melissa shares advice for prospective grad school students that she wished she had followed, and Melissa and I also swap stealthy moray eel stories, so stay tuned for that. Please enjoy. Melissa, welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. I'm really excited to chat with you today. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, this is a great opportunity. We're going to chat quite a bit about science and science communication, but you are working on your PhD and you've done research in the Red Sea and the Great Barrier Reef, and I want to hear about this. Can you talk about your research and what you've looked at? Yeah. So ever since going to college in my undergraduate career, I had always been very interested in coral reefs. I mean, people that studied marine science in my college were interested in dolphins and whales and sea turtles and like the charismatic megafauna. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I wasn't really interested in that. For some reason, I was drawn to invertebrates. I was drawn to these very small animals. And instantly, when I learned how to scuba dive, I really got interested in just coral reefs because how colorful they were. So Mm. while other people were interested in scuba diving with sharks or going out looking for humpback whales, I would just stick my face in the reef and stare at the small things for hours. So that kind of brought me to my research interest of studying coral reef ecosystems and invertebrates on, on a coral reef ecosystem. The first introduction to that was through the King Abdullah University of Science and Technology, KAUST, in Saudi Arabia. And Mm. before I started grad school, I actually did an internship there. The Red Sea is very understudied. So once I got there, I kind of had free range of like, whatever I wanted to study, go out, check it out, snorkel, see what looks cool to you and come back with some questions. And the first day I went out snorkeling, I saw giant clams for the first time ever. Mm. I don't even think that I had seen giant clams in an aquarium before this. For the audience that doesn't know what giant clams look like, they're actually very beautiful. They they mm-hmm. open up on the top and they have this iridescent blue and turquoise, purple, greens, and even like pinks and yellows, like different colored patterns on their mantle. And I just saw these creatures and 
I fell in love with them because of how beautiful they were. And when I got back to the lab, I had asked my professor, has anybody studied these? And he was like, no, actually, <laughs> we don't really know much about giant clams in the Red Sea. So that kind of just sparked my interest of my first research project with coral reef organisms. And that was looking at the relationship between the giant clam as the animal host to microscopic algae. And mm-hmm. this symbiosis is actually the exact same relationship that happens between coral and its microscopic algae that basically feed it, provide up to 90% of its food requirement. So mm. before delving into coral reef symbiosis or coral symbiosis, I looked at giant clam symbiosis. And this was kind of like a, a segue into the more competitive world of coral symbiosis and coral bleaching, to be mm. more specific. So I actually entered that research world by using the giant clam as the host animal and kind of studying that relationship within a different invertebrate. And ever since studying them, I actually, I think that I like giant clams more than I like corals. (laughs) (laughs) But in, in like a bigger picture, most people care about corals more than they care about giant clams. And that's just because coral reefs are the ones that are providing an entire ecosystem to Mm -hmm. a major amount of like marine animals and fish and biodiversity that we rely on like for resources. So coral reefs are more in the the public spotlight than like Mm -hmm. giant clams and other invertebrates. But that's kind of how I got started. I looked at the relationship between giant clams and these microscopic algae. And then I looked at what would happen if you raise the temperature and see what giant clams or how they will respond to warming oceans. In the Red Sea, it's actually very, very hot already. The Red Sea is one of the warmest oceans that even hosts a coral reef. Because of that, it's kind of like a living laboratory. Professors at KAUST usually say that a lot, where we can actually study what is happening in the ocean as if it's already a couple years into the future. in in terms of climate change, in terms of of ocean warming, because the temperature Mm -hmm. in the Red Sea can get up to like 30 degrees Celsius, and that temperature anywhere else will probably start causing coral bleaching. So it is a cool way to see how organisms in that ecosystem have already adapted to a warming climate, and then looking at the relationship between the host invertebrate and microscopic algae, And what happens there when you start increasing the temperature. And so that's kind of how I got started. I want to back up a minute and talk more about giant clams. Because the first time I saw them was actually in the Indian Ocean. And I had the same sense of wonder and awe. Because giant clams, they they really are really big. I mean, how big did they get? The ones I saw were a couple feet. The giant clams, like Tridacna gigas, which is the species that's the largest one. They get up to like six feet in length, larger than a, a person too. So yeah, that's how they got their name. <laughs> right. I mean, and usually when people think of clams, they think of maybe the ones that you eat that are like, what, an inch, maybe two yeah. tiny little mm-hmm. things. No, six foot giant clams. And they're beautiful. Like you mentioned, they're purple, they're iridescent mm-hmm. teal, and they have their mantle is kind of like well, scalloped shape. It has like a scalloping mm-hmm. to it. It's it's frilled. It's really, really mm-hmm. beautiful. The coloring of these giant clams, 
is it similar to corals that they get their coloring from the symbiotic algae? And is the algae zooxanthellae as well, or is it a different species? Yeah. So, so the species of algae that live in giant clams is the same species, or I guess I, to make that more scientifically accurate, I would say they're in the same family. At this moment, there are hundreds of different species that we're only now discovering because of like new genetic techniques. So some of the species in giant clams can also be present in corals, but they all exist in the same family. And that's kind of like the most important part that we're talking about, like a symbiotic algae that lives in a host invertebrate on the coral reef all come from the same family. So it is a really similar relationship in corals. Okay. And then to answer the second question about the color, giant clams, yes, when they bleach, they basically turn white. So Mm -hmm. a lot of the color that they do have comes from the symbiotic algae, just like in corals. The thing that's slightly different in giant clams is that they have really cool cells that are called eridocytes. And they kind of act like mirrors, like they reflect sunlight and they also reflect sunlight in a way that makes them look iridescent. But Mm. they do that also because the zooxanthellae, those algae that live inside their tissue, are actually stacked vertically in like tubules that you can imagine look kind of like capillaries, like in our human Mm. blood system. And they're stacked vertically. The weird thing about that is that these cells need sunlight to actually work, to actually Mm -hmm. photosynthesize. But to get the sunlight, since they're all stacked upon each other, they have these amazing cells called eridocytes that act like mirrors and actually angle the sunlight into these little tubules so that each cell receives sunlight to photosynthesize. So it's a pretty cool structure. Yeah, that's really fascinating. So they have the symbiotic relationship with the zooxanthellae, with the the symbiotic algae, like corals. But I mean, when you think again, clams—you know, the little little clams that we can get at the grocery store, we mm-hmm. you know go clamming for—those don't have a symbiotic relationship with an algae. They're filter feeders primarily. Do are giant clams not primarily filter feeders, or they really get a lot of their nutrients from this relationship? They do both. I mean. In reality, both coral and clams are heterotrophic, so they can feed, or mixotrophic, rather. They can feed heterotrophically and autotrophically, so they can get their own carbon from the water column, or they can get carbon from photosynthesis through their symbiotic partners. The cool thing about giant clams is that the entire reason why they were able to grow so large is because they have a symbiotic relationship with this algae. Mm. So... If they didn't have that, they wouldn't have this excess amount of carbon in their system to allow them to grow that to that size. So mm. yes, they still filter feed, but without that symbiotic relationship, they wouldn't be giant. <laughs> gotcha. That makes sense then. So you mentioned earlier that your interest in the clams and your and your studies of the clams kind of helped you get into the more competitive world of coral reef studies. Did you mean that it was actually like job-wise competitive or what did you mean by that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The coral reef research world is pretty competitive and it's also a really small world too. So mm-hmm. once you get in, you start recognizing names and people and your professors and supervisors and somehow you start 
making that web of connections and you're it's very easy to see how it does become competitive but it's also like a com- competition between friends hopefully friends mm. because there's just so many people that you recognize and you'll go to the conferences to speak about your research and you see the same people and it's just it's kind of becomes a a family of researchers and in that sense it is competitive because everybody is working really hard on these topics of climate change and coral bleaching and like i said coral reefs coral the organism itself is the one that creates a reef structure which sustains ecosystems so Mm -hmm. it's kind of like a very very top priority for climate change research with marine animals so that's why it's so competitive is that because everybody's trying to answer these questions because no one was looking at giant clams that was a great way for me to start learning the system start learning even what it's like to be in academia be in research Mm -hmm and use a host animal that I didn't feel like I needed to be so competitive that it wouldn't allow me to publish first author papers. I started kind of with some low-hanging fruit, but I really fell in love with my project, and I really fell in love with giant clams. And honestly, I would have continued that in my PhD. I just know that a lot of the major implications of research is coming out of the coral organism and coral bleaching. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of how I directed myself from there. Okay, so let's chat a little bit about that. So in your coral studies, were you staying in the Red Sea? It sounds like that would have been the hotbed, or is that when you kind of made the transition over to the Great Barrier Reef? Yeah, I did my master's in with Red Sea Research and did that with giant clams. And I was fortunate enough to be able to create some of my own experiments that were not dictated by others. So I actually had a lot of creativity in my master's project. There were reasons for that. The university there is very well funded. And so you, if you have research questions that might actually cost a lot of money to answer in another university, KAUST was great at funding these things. And then, mm-hmm. like I said before, the Red Sea was so understudied that you could almost choose any organism and have novel research, a novel research question just right there. Because not many people have studied that ecosystem. But then after I graduated with my master's, I was looking into some researchers in Australia. And there was actually a pretty concrete link here. While I was working on my thesis in my master's, I was writing about all these things about giant clam bleaching. And not a lot of people have studied that. And not a lot of people have published papers about that. One person I found did his PhD thesis on giant clam bleaching. And he was located in Australia, and he is now a professor and now a head of a lab group. So I contacted him mostly out of questions about what's going on with giant clam bleaching. I want to answer some of these questions in my thesis. And he was very helpful. And then that conversation kind of turned into oh, what are you working on now? And he was talking about (laughs) coral symbiosis and coral bleaching. And I was like, yeah, I would really like to get involved. I wonder if I can maybe apply to work with you for a PhD position. And it was great. Like, that's how I made connection with him. We had a Skype interview and it kind of just turned into, yeah, apply. The ability to work with him was also amazing because 
he knew so much about giant clams as well. So I was bringing some of that passion that he had into a new project about coral bleaching. And that's kind of how I transitioned into Australia. Amazing. You were in University of New South Wales? Yeah. What did you study specifically with the corals there? I did something similar, and I'm Mm -hmm. still working on this project. Mm -hmm. During my master's, what I wanted to do was look at the genetic differences of these many different species of algae that lived inside of giant clams. Because we are actually right on the edge of figuring out and characterizing these species based on genetic differences. And when I'm talking about genetic differences, I'm actually looking at a difference of one base pair change. So this kind of means if you were looking at DNA sequences and just one switch of an A, a T, a G, or a C could actually mean a difference in the species is something that Mm. we are now starting to realize with these modern genetic techniques. As we get better at sequencing DNA and finding and actually lining up A's, T's, G's, and C's and seeing where they differ, we might actually be able to characterize a different species based on just one change in that sequence. And that's very, very high resolution to characterize species based on. So I was kind of doing that with my master's thesis. And then I transitioned into coral symbiosis, which is very interesting because there are many different coral species that can host many different species of algae at the same time in one colony. Mm. And so back in the day, we used to believe that there was one species, one species of zooxanthellae that lived in coral, and that was it. Mm. Now we're finding that there are hundreds. So this interesting question comes up is if there are different species, if there's actually differences in the organisms that live in this coral, that could also imply functional difference. So Mm -hmm. we're trying to see if there are certain species of algae that might be more tolerant of warming oceans, that might be more tolerant of ocean acidification that might be better at providing faster growth or more food. So I'm in the process of looking at the actual diversity of these species that live in coral and then trying to determine how does that diversity shift between healthy and bleached corals. And if there's some sort of pattern that we can see, maybe we can start to identify different functions of those algae species as well. And hopefully the big, big, big aim here is to see if we can predict what these patterns are of diversity, identify what species of algae would tolerate warming oceans. That would actually help us understand what coral species might be more tolerant in our future oceans. It's looking at the micro scale to understand and predict what might be present in our future oceans on the macro scale. Amazing. Genetics just blows my mind and what we've been able to look at and accomplish and really understand within our oceans. Mm -hmm. What got you inspired to study marine science in the first place? (laughs) Well, I grew up up in Arizona, landlocked Mm -hmm. desert. And um, (laughs) 
yeah, so the idea of marine science was just like kind of laughable when I was in high school. I remember when I think it was eighth grade that I decided I wanted to be a marine biologist. And I think that the my passion for that has always come from the fact that I don't live somewhere, or at least I didn't grow up somewhere where the ocean was always accessible to me. So going mm-hmm. to the ocean actually was a very, very special treat. And there was mm-hmm. one time I visited the ocean in Florida and I found the smallest sea star and I thought that was the coolest thing. So I picked it up and I was showing people, showing this little girl. And I remember going to show this little girl on the beach and her mom said, oh yeah, she sees those all the time. It's not really that cool. And I thought to myself, what? (laughs) This is the coolest thing to me. Like I live somewhere where a sea star, like that is not an everyday occurrence. So (laughs) I think... (laughs) I think that my, the fact that I didn't take the ocean for granted and the fact that every time I saw it, it was very special and it meant a lot to me, kind of sparked that interest of marine science and marine biology. But I do remember it being a very strange topic for a high school student to bring up to their college counselor saying, Mm -hmm. I want to study marine biology. And they look at me like I'm crazy because it's not even a topic, a class, anything offered in high school or colleges in the entire state. It was automatically also, if I chose that major, if I chose that passion, it meant that I was going to travel. And that was a big thing for me as well. I really was excited to get out of my hometown and marine science just required me to get out of my hometown. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So where did you end up going to your undergrad then? I went to school at Eckerd College in St. Petersburg, Florida, which is a very small liberal arts school, but very well known for the marine science program. They had a laboratory right on the water. I mean, Mm -hmm. the water coming into that laboratory was just pumped straight from the bay. So it was a very hands-on learning style. They offer, well, they actually really encourage students to do internships and research projects during the summer courses or during their summer breaks. And in doing that, it really inspired me to continue doing research because without the opportunity to do a thesis in undergrad, I would have no idea how to even go about doing a thesis for my master's or for my PhD. So it was a great school to go to to kind of get that foot in the door of what it's like to be in academic research. Mm, Yeah, that's a really good point of getting that experience in your undergrad and you must have learned that you liked it or at least good enough at it because thesis can be quite daunting for a lot of people and it could make or break whether your decision whether or not you want to go on to grad school. Yeah. In the program that I was in, the marine science major at Eckerd, you could decide if you wanted to take your comprehensive exams, which was what the majority of students did to pass mm-hmm with that degree, or you could actually write a thesis. And Mm -hmm. writing a thesis is the harder route because it requires so much of your own original thought and creativity, and you're not really told what to do or how to do it. So in going that route in my undergrad, I really learned some lessons of what it's like to do research. It's a lot less hand-holding and very different from just taking classes in undergrad. 
So that that was mm-hmm. a big lesson to learn there. Yeah, I like your point of not being told what to do and how to do it. That's a really excellent point because when you take a test, it's more or less what you're doing. You're you're being told something and then you regurgitate it back in a different yeah. form. And when you're creating your own project, it, it definitely utilizes a different part of your brain and forces you to think for yourself. Exactly. I was very good at memorizing. And <laughs> it was funny because I took courses that weren't related to my major, but the professors realized that I did really well in those exams. And that's because I was really good at memorizing. And they would <laughs> encourage me to go to study that field instead. And it was just, Mm. it's funny because just because you're good at memorizing or you're good at test taking doesn't mean that it's going to translate to amazing research skills or thesis Mm -hmm. writing skills. And that I think was maybe one of the hardest lessons I learned transitioning from undergrad to grad school because yeah, it's no longer a classroom. It's no longer a list of bullet points that you memorize. It is your own creativity, your own research questions that you have to ask and answer. Mm-hmm. And be able to apply the knowledge that you had learned into what you're trying to answer. Yeah, exactly. So it's good you had mm-hmm. the background knowledge, but now you take all of that and you get to do your own cool thing with it. <laughs> yes. I love that. And you decided to study clams and corals, which is pretty incredible. But you have an artistic side. You want to chat a little bit about your science communication and kind of how you decided to uh, pursue that path a little bit more. Yeah, it's interesting because even in high school, I really enjoyed arts and I really enjoyed drawing and painting. Um, But I think that we're told really early on that, you know, you're either an artist or a scientist. And for some Mm -hmm. reason, all of those fields just get put in their own boxes. Even when you go and you choose your major in college, you're either humanities or cultural arts major or you're a science major. And that's Mm -hmm. clearly defined by your actual degree. You're a bachelor of arts or you're a bachelor of science. Mm -hmm. And in that separation I think that it just kind of trained me to believe that I couldn't combine the two or actually that mm-hmm. I didn't even realize that that I could do that. It was like so far from the idea of what was possible. When I was going to school at Kaust in Saudi, I realized that the students there, because they were very focused on hard sciences, didn't really have a lot of opportunity to have a creative outlet. And I think that even in a university that's very dedicated to the hard sciences, it's actually really important to have other ways to communicate their science or ways to even communicate things that they're thinking in their head. Like if you're trying to answer research questions, sometimes math and computer science and data analysis is not going to answer it. Sometimes you need a creative vision to answer it. And so I created this uh, program at, at KAUST, which was basically just an arts program, which allowed students to come and have a creative outlet and express feelings and emotions and ideas and, and everything else that was outside of their hard science research. And that actually received a lot of praise and it became a very fast growing student organization. After that, I kind of decided, you know what? why can't I combine art and science? Like, why have I always been told that 
you're either an artist or a scientist. And why is it Mm -hmm. that I can't be both? So when Mm -hmm. I started my PhD, I really came into the program and I really expressed to my supervisors that this was my passion, art and science, and specifically using art to communicate science. Because I, I found my love for communicating science through presentations and conferences and just talking to people about it that had never heard about giant clam or coral symbiosis. And I realized that it's very hard for people to understand what you're talking about if you don't give them visual aids. So I started leaning in more on how you represent your data in a visual way that is understandable to the general public. And then that started my passion for doing infographics and drawing handmade slides about how corals bleach and the process of bleaching and recovery. And that just kind of spiraled into this idea of using art to communicate science And also just respecting that art in itself is a way to communicate with people and culture and society that you can't really do with numbers and graphs and data. I mean, Mm -hmm. when you see an image of a coral reef dying, it speaks way more to you on that emotional level than a number or a percentage. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is probably the most important thing about why I use art to communicate science and really just art for its own sake is that it speaks to people on an emotional level and people act on their emotions. And so if you want people to change their actions or to do a new action, you speak to them on an emotional level. And so that's kind of the language that I use to do more of the call to action kind of conservation things or just changes in lifestyle that would actually protect coral reefs. And then it just turned into creating this online community called Emerging Creatives of Science. And I'm in the process of doing some digital collaborations, but that started as a community where artists and scientists can get together and create a meaningful project communicating an environmental issue, but in a visual way or in an artistic way that spoke to a larger audience. Mm, I love that. Could you give me an example of a project that came out of the Emerging Creatives of Science? Yeah. One of our first ones was actually a collaboration between five scientists and five artists. We paired them up and had basically each scientist, which were actually my colleagues. They were my fellow coral reef research uh, students, PhD, postdocs, professors. We talked about our specific research projects, gave that kind of spiel to the artist, and the artist created something that could be communicated on a visual level to the general public. And that visual design was turned into a mural. We then decorated our campus with these coral reef murals, and each one had a different message, but each one spoke about climate change and and coral bleaching and coral reef disease and threats and things like that. But in a way that wasn't just scientists throwing up numbers and data and speaking in facts and bullet points. It was one of the artists created a beautiful kind of mermaid picture that was half like a healthy mermaid and half kind of a diseased mermaid. And that Mm -hmm. was a representation of a student's research on coral disease, which actually increases when corals are facing climate change and bleaching. Bleached corals are going to be 
more prone to diseases. And so it's just kind of this downward spiral of degradation. And in turning that into a human face that had mermaid kind of qualities to it, it made it way more connected to people and society. Yeah, we've done a lot of other in-person events. And now because of COVID, we're transitioning into the digital space and I'm working on some some digital zine fests. So that will be something that comes up next. What is a digital zine fest? So I just learned about zines not too <laughs> long ago. They're basically these little booklets that it's it's like telling a story and you can you can do this with any sort of information. I think that there's a market for zines in almost every field, but I'm just interested in like science zines. So telling your science story through visuals and text and drawings through like an actual paper booklet. So they're like miniature magazines. Um, Hmm. And I just did like a a conference where these two women who have started their own kind of art science communication organization, they're called Two Photon Arts. They create zines and they're just amazing storytellers. And that's the thing. People connect with information better when it's told through a story rather than a list Mm -hmm. of facts. So my next goal for Ecos is to create a digital template of zines that you can actually just copy and create your own or just print on an A4 size piece of paper and draw your own zine and then have basically a digital library of different zines. And and the first one that I want to promote is on the topic of imposter syndrome, which is something Mm. that both artists and scientists deal with. It's very (laughs) present in our society. And I just want to bring it into like the context of telling a story around it and Mm -hmm. normalizing it a bit better because it is something that doesn't get talked about enough. And I know that a lot of people struggle with it. So that's going to be our first one. I really love this topic a lot. Uh, I personally struggle with it. Like you mentioned, I think everybody does struggle with it. Could you explain a little bit about your experience with imposter syndrome? Yeah, it's, um, you know, I never thought that I would have it. Maybe that's a thing. Maybe that's the reason why it hurts so much when it does happen. But um, (laughs) I think what happens specifically with PhD students and just science grad students is that people who decide to go to grad school are usually the ones in college that have received straight A's, very good grades, really good at test taking, a lot of encouragement from professors, family, like you're seen as as the smart one and you're Mm -hmm. constantly encouraged to just continue that path. And that's great. But when you get to the next step, grad school is such a different beast than undergrad. And like I said, it's it's a lot of learning on your own, a lot less hand-holding. And you're in a world of academic publishing as well, which is not just students. It's a whole world of professionals. And you have so many people looking at your work, telling you if it's good enough or if it needs major revisions. Mm-hmm. So that academic publishing world is actually uh, an eye-opening step into what can cause imposter syndrome. But basically, (laughs) students get to grad school, and this happened to me, where I was super confident. I mean, I had just done an an internship with KAUST, 
before I started my master's. And so I had my community of people. I knew my supervisor. I knew my study subject. I knew what I wanted to ask. And then I realized, wow, it's a lot of work. And (laughs) you start writing. And the more you start writing, the more you realize you don't know anything. And then you have to read almost like 50 papers to even write one paragraph of a thesis. (laughs) And so it's just constant acknowledgement of the fact that you actually don't know anything and um Mm -hmm. you go down that path and and when you have supportive supervisors they're there to basically tell you that that's normal and that's okay and like you just keep going you get stuck with difficult supervisors that's where imposter syndrome can get really bad and I think that that happened to me uh during my PhD more so than in Mm -hmm. my master's because a PhD is also very different from a master's and you think, oh, maybe three to five years of just master's level intensity, and it's really not. It's a completely new thing as well. And PhD is just, it's a different world where in the age group of students that are getting their PhDs, we're also kind of worried about settling down, making money, starting a family, where do you want to live? And that kind of part of your adult life on top of PhD pressure is just a really interesting mix for how imposter syndrome can continue. Mm. I kind of found myself feeling really down, like writing papers, constantly getting criticism, constantly feeling like nothing I did was good enough. And it does take a blow on the confidence. It does really affect (laughs) that. But I think the amazing thing about the social media communities around imposter syndrome and around academic in general, like going on Twitter and seeing that other students were struggling with the exact same thing just makes you feel like, oh yeah, I'm not the only one. And mm-hmm. so I think the the culture around talking about it and the culture around actually voicing what imposter syndrome is, if, for example, if my supervisors in the beginning of my PhD had a talk about imposter syndrome, I think it would be much easier to deal with. And I think it would be less difficult to kind of get in that position where you do feel like you're the only one struggling. And Mm. once I started talking to other lab mates, other colleagues and saying, oh, I'm struggling with imposter syndrome, and they say that too, then it just, it feels like you're in a community that you're not alone. And so Mm -hmm. that's kind of why I'm doing this zine fest is that, you know what, let's talk about it. Let's make stories about it. Let's just tell students like, yeah we're struggling, it sucks, we get it, but you're not alone. And we can actually share our own personal stories in some cool, creative way. I love that. I like the conversation of bringing imposter syndrome to the front of grad school. I mean, it could even be in the front of undergrad, but Mm -hmm. just highlighting like, this is something, this is a phenomenon. It will probably happen to you. This is what it feels like. And that way, when you get to that point, it's not such a devastating blow. It's a more of just like a acknowledgement. Yes, okay, that's what this is. I will get through it. It's a normal part and being able to go on instead of like you've experienced, you know, spinning your wheels a little bit and then seeking that reassurance elsewhere, which is also mm-hmm. wonderful and and wonderful that that community is available. But to even just preemptively highlight it so that people don't feel as quite as lost when it does happen. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Love that. And I think maybe it's also important for when you start a grad school experience, 
it's good to know that it's not going to be easy and beautiful and fun the whole time. I mean, (laughs) because when it's set up that way, when your supervisors or people in the community make you think that it's going to be just the best time of your life, and then when things start becoming difficult and challenging, then you start questioning, wait, is this what this is supposed to be? Am I not smart enough? And I think just like having that beginning conversation of like, it is going to suck sometimes. Like you are going to (laughs) struggle. And that's the nature of it. Like it is really difficult. And just like saying that without feeling like you're scaring away the students, you know, doing that in a way Mm -hmm. that's just this is like life. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. it's not going to be perfect. And it's really, it's an amazing part of your life in that you learn so much and that you're going to like overcome so many challenges. People that don't do a PhD may not understand what it is like to be in grad school. And it is, Mm -hmm. it's hard to kind of connect with people outside of an academic grad school setting. But I think the more that people talk about it, then the easier that connection will be. Mm -hmm. Great point. So one of the topics that you mentioned when initially talking about being on the podcast was when to recognize when the path no longer serves you. And I think that's a really important topic to discuss as well. So you mentioned that your, your PhD, you've kind of stepped away a little bit from. So could you explain a little bit more about that? Yeah, so I think in 2020, everybody had some sort of struggle. I mean, Mm -hmm. some of my friends actually really enjoyed the fact that we were on lockdown because it meant that they didn't have social obligations. It meant that they didn't have to feel (laughs) like they needed to go out and celebrate people's birthdays when they actually were stressing about writing a paper. (laughs) they weren't missing anything they just could just focus on what they needed to do (laughs) I know it was it's so funny because in grad school you do have this the FOMO feeling the fear of missing Mm -hmm. out and (laughs) when the world just shut down it was kind of like an excuse to not have FOMO which was really Mm -hmm. great like I did enjoy that to be honest but I think also 2020 was the year where a lot of people kind of sat back and realized or reflected more on what they were doing and if it really was Mm -hmm. what they wanted to do with their lives. It was the year of figuring out your priorities. And being abroad in Australia meant that I was very far from my family in the United States. And a plane ticket alone is nearly $1,000. So it was always Mm -hmm. such a hurdle to come back and see my family. When COVID became a global pandemic, I had made plans already to visit my family, but then those kept getting pushed back to the point where the students sitting in Australia that wanted to go visit their family in another country kind of realized, okay, maybe this is not going to happen. And we can't Mm -hmm. keep thinking it's just postponing because there was never a point in time where we knew for sure we could go travel. So Mm -hmm. I kind of realized that I was missing my family. I was also realizing that I was going through some toxic situations with my supervisors. And I just felt like things were not helping me be the person I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. And I I also had a struggle with the idea before that I was saying that science and art have always existed in separate boxes. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. 
the university systems, the majority of university systems still kind of exist in that segregated way. Mm-hmm. And we are, we are working on breaking those boundaries. We are working on opening the bubbles. And so that we're not just separated in our own little silos of our own community. But <laughs> it was a difficult ask for me to show up and have three, three and a half years to finish a PhD, but also wanting to combine art and science in a way that had never been done before at this university. Mm-hmm. It was very ambitious. And, and then in realizing what was happening is that my PhD tended towards the science side, which is fine because that's where my expertise was in. So I continued with that path, but I got closer to the end and realized I haven't done any of what I said I wanted to do, which was combine art and science and look at how efficient that communication style would be at communicating science to a larger audience. And so I was actually losing some of a big passion of mine for entering into the PhD. And I was finding it very hard to fit that back into my thesis. I just decided, you know, in terms of it being COVID, my family's very far away. My partner had just moved back to the U.S. And I was also feeling stuck with the actual thesis I was working on. I thought, you know what, I'm going to step back because it's just not good for my mental health, really. I just had to decide my mental health was declining. And I just had to decide that that was more important than the the fact that I was about to take program leave and not know when I could return to Australia. Even at the, the moment, international travel was still banned. I had to sacrifice that that certainty of coming back. And I'm actually, mm. I actually don't regret it at all because coming back to be with my family and to step back and work on some other things other than hard science PhD thesis has actually been really helpful for regaining my confidence and getting myself out of that imposter syndrome. So I I think that if I knew what was going to happen in the beginning of my PhD, I would have done a few things differently. But I also think that the idea of taking breaks and the fact that you can take breaks is a really important part of grad school. And I would suggest mm-hmm. for anybody who needs a break to take one if, if they can, because PhD and grad life is not your life. Like it is maybe three to five years of your life. And if, mm-hmm. if you get too pulled into that, it can be, it can make it very hard for you to kind of regain your identity. If you're losing, if your mental health is declining, it would be hard to regain that identity when you graduate. So there is, there is kind of um, a struggle between mental health and getting a degree. And I think mental health in general, just like imposter syndrome, is something that we need to work a little bit more on in academia and making it a bit more normalized and talking about it more so that it doesn't mm-hmm. seem like such a scary subject when it does come up and so that students don't wait until they're at a breaking point to feel like they can take a break. Mm, that's a good point. So you mentioned that you would have done a couple of things differently if you had mm-hmm. known what would happen. What would you have done differently? I think what I would have done differently is to look at before you decide who you're going to do a master's or a PhD with, you should definitely talk to previous students of those supervisors. And I didn't do that. 
I think I had just come from a really amazing community and a really um, supportive supervisor for my master's. And I think that was maybe more on the rare side of what students receive in terms of support from supervisors. So I was kind of going into the PhD with the assumption that all supervisors are that amazing. And unfortunately, that's not the case. And that's just because supervisors work different with students. And so Mm -hmm. it's really important to talk to previous students or current students and understand if you might be similar to them in their work style, in their career passions, in what they want to do with their life after the PhD, because then you can start to find supervisors that already work well with those types of students. And the students in my lab are very focused on staying in academia, doing research, really amazing at getting academic publications. I mean, they are top, top research students, and they fit really well within that grad school design. I don't really Mm -hmm. fit within that so much. And if I had started over, I would maybe find a lab that is more accustomed to dealing with students that want to do non-academic jobs after a PhD and Mm. more accustomed to students that are interested in interdisciplinary approaches. So I would just maybe do a little bit more research on what kinds of students those supervisors have supervised in the past. And then the other thing would be is that although I definitely did do this when I started, just have some time before you start grad school to think about what you really want out of it. Think about like, what is your career path after the degree? Because if your degree is not serving you, you are going to end up serving the degree. And that is where your mental health can start to decline. I kind of just realized that if I had more time, I would have started off working a bit better in that space of how do I join art and science? How do I go down a path of designing studies that would help me get non-academic jobs in communications or in museums that specialize in art and science and bringing those two together? I think for me, I probably needed a bit more time and a bit more confidence or like integrity to myself to decide this is what I want and this is what I want to study rather than allowing others to dictate that path for me. Great advice. I like the thought of beginning with the end in mind. What are you trying to get out of that? It's something that I try to encourage listeners a lot when they're like, I want to go to grad school. I'm like, okay, wonderful. Why? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And really understanding why you want to go rather than, well, it just seems like the next step. Mm-hmm. Right now you're working on some projects where you are combining art and science. And we chatted a little bit about this before we hit the record button. I love this, that you're recording on inf- or you're working on infographics for scientific papers. So could you talk a little bit about maybe one of your projects that you're working on now? Yeah. Um, at the moment, I am working multiple part-time jobs. One of them is the science writer job, which I actually get to use some of my creativity and create infographics and graphics for researchers that are trying to convey either an actual scientific paper, so I'll do infographics that show methodology of a study, or just general science graphics that show what a researcher studies and kind of more profile-based graphics. So I'm working on some of those right now. One of the projects that is very close to home because it's on coral reef research as well is I'm working on a student's thesis to help her 
create visual abstracts for each one of her chapters of her PhD thesis. And she's looking at coral nutrition and how bleaching can affect that. And so I'm basically creating, you know, drawing on my iPad, watercolor style graphics of corals and methodology. And so that for each one of her chapters, she has some visual summary of what that chapter is conveying and turning words into images. And that's just kind of a great way to use in presentations. You can print them out. They can become freestanding images. And uh, I've, done, I've done that kind of work ever since I've done my own research because that's just how I found is the best way to communicate what I've done. So now I'm just mm-hmm. using my skills to help other students do that as well and, and other organizations and universities as well. So yeah, I'm kind of joining both of those powers and that's my current position. I love it. I love this idea so much. I mean, obviously I love science communication. I have a whole podcast about it, but I love (laughs) the idea of taking these just chunky, massive, daunting to most people, scientific papers and making it into a easily digestible infographic that you can understand and actually bridging that gap between what the scientific jargon is saying and what people can actually understand and implement in their everyday life. Awesome. Mm -hmm. At the end of each episode, I like to give the audience a conservation ask to go forth and do. What would you like the audience to take from today's episode? Well, I will say a couple ones. And I'll just say the first one because I get asked this question a lot. People always want to know, how can I help the coral reefs? Especially when I'm telling them about my research on coral bleaching. Uh, Mm -hmm. One of the first things that I always say is just kind of look at lifestyle choices on an individual basis. And one of the biggest things that can help is just decreasing meat consumption during the week. So like just limiting that or just being more aware of it, kind of really interested in like sustainable food. So like gardening and hunting or fishing and things like that, that you could potentially do to decrease the carbon, your carbon footprint. But I think also more on a personal conservation ask because I'm so interested in art and science and the collaboration there is to just use Instagram because that's an amazing place to start. But use Instagram Mm -hmm. just to follow some really cool creative campaigns that are trying to raise awareness on coral bleaching. So the Ocean Agency is an amazing community that does a lot of creative coral bleaching campaigns and they're actually part of the documentary called Chasing Coral which is on Netflix Mm -hmm. so if you haven't seen that I would recommend watching that and then another one is Pangea Seed which is an organization that supports artists who are using their art to communicate environmental issues and they just did a beautiful campaign right before election season where they said for all artists to create their own version of posters with the words, vote the environment. So the idea Mm -hmm. was to create some sort of illustration that would convince people or help raise awareness for people while they were voting to be aware of environmental issues. So there's some really cool campaigns out there. And that's what I'm interested in kind of creating for myself and also Ecos is to be a part of those communities that do that. I love it. So my favorite question to ask is what is your favorite field story or stories to tell? And this could be like the best day in the field you saw an amazing creature and you had a wonderful reaction or interaction, or it could just be a day that you had in the field where 
lots of things went wrong and it's a really great story now. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I was in the field a lot when I was in Saudi and I scuba dived for all of my sampling. I think I dove over a hundred, at least a hundred dives for that project. Um, I'd go out every single season, dive twice on a reef and go check out clams that I had tagged. And it became a really cool way for me to just get to know each reef. And I thought that I knew each reef very well. One (laughs) of the dives that I went down it's funny because when I'm diving for work, it's actually a very different experience than diving for fun. When I'm diving mm-hmm. for work, I have an entire tool belt that I have mm-hmm. scissors, forceps, sample bags, tubes, clippings, carabiners, all these things attached to my BCD, my, my vest. And when you're going down, you think everything is secure. And I remember mm-hmm. getting down there and I think the first thing that happened was I lost all of my sample bags. They floated up to the top. <laughs> So I was down there trying to collect samples with nothing to put the sample in. And luckily, my dive buddy found them and handed them to me. And I was like, great. (laughs) Like, I'm hoping this one little mess up is the only thing that's going to happen. And then I'm down there and my face is like buried in the reef. And I'm just looking, focusing on my work, trying to collect tissue from a clam, which is actually very difficult because... Once you start poking around, they close up and they don't open for at least 10 minutes. And they close up very, very tight. So the way that I had to sample was I had this metal rod that I would kind of slide into the shells, in between the shells, and it would close down on the metal rod but allow there to be enough gap for me to just take a very small clipping of the mantle. Mm -hmm. One time I went down and it closed on the rod in a way that – closed completely down and I tried to pull the rod out of the clam and end up pulling the entire clam off the reef. Oh no. <laughs> and so that was a devastating moment for the clam. Although it, it did survive. I just had to put it back on the reef. The, the funny thing was is that <laughs> on that dive, I was so focused on what I was doing. And while you're diving, the, the smallest and easiest tasks, like just using scissors underwater, becomes a thousand times harder because you're underwater, yes. you're breathing, your mask is fogging up, the wave is very strong, currents are kind of ripping through, and it's just like, it's so much more difficult to do anything underwater. So I'm very, mm-hmm. very focused, and all of a sudden, I kind of finish my sampling, and I turn my head, and there is a huge green mora eel right next to my face with its mouth (laughs) opening and closing and just like looking at me as if I'm a threat. And the thing about moray eels is that their eyesight is horrible. So it doesn't really understand what I am, but when they feel threatened, they will come out and they will bite you. So I freaked out. That was probably the scariest dive I've ever been on because I wasn't (laughs) expecting it. And that's including diving with sharks because you know, when you're not expecting it and something like that is right next to your face, that is yes. probably the scariest moment ever. And I think what happened, I ended up dropping my forceps and they went all the way down to the ocean floor. <laughs> that was the end of those. <laughs> but, As a sacrifice to Poseidon. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, oh, well, at least I don't have expensive equipment. I never dropped anything <laughs> too expensive. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> Silver lining with that. Yeah, it's always startling when something just kind of pops out of nowhere and it's right next to your face. 
Yep, and it's funny because I, I dove with sharks that are like, you know, super close to me that I could reach out and touch and I wasn't scared then. And that's just because I knew what I was diving with. I knew exactly what I was getting myself into. And this right. one was like just a complete surprise. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great story. <laughs> we had a similar experience with Amore. I was actually just free diving at night on a reef and I went down mm-hmm. to like check something out and I was coming back up and I just kind of did like a slow turn and my husband was right above me like watching and he like starts mm-hmm. like moving the flashlight and like freaking out and I was like what and I like slowly come up I'm like what's wrong mm-hmm. and he's like a huge moray came out and was like right by your head when you turned <laughs> and I looked look down and there's like this giant moray eel just mouthing at me from this and yep. I was like oh well okay <laughs> yeah yeah. And they look so menacing. I mean, just the way that they open and close their mouth is like, that's just a scary animal. <laughs> they do look menacing. They do. <laughs> oh, it's yeah. a funny story. So if people want to find you, connect with you, uh, where is the best place to do so? I'm very active on my Ecos Instagram. So that's at Ecos underscore Sci Art. And Uh, I mean, I'm also on Instagram, just my personal page, but that's where I'll mostly be for like science and art and any type of research based stuff. I also post a lot of opportunities for either research students or artists or science communication opportunities on my stories there. And then also just the website in general, the website needs updating, but everything that I would post on the website goes to the Instagram. Perfect. I will put a link to that and everything we chatted about today in the show notes for listeners as well. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Well, this was really fun chatting with you, Melissa. Thank you for being on the show today. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. I think that hopefully my story resonates with others out there. I definitely think it will. Hey, do you want to help the oceans? Have you considered a career in marine biology, but maybe just aren't sure where to start? Head on over to my website, marinebio.life and subscribe to my newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll receive a free PDF download where you'll learn the seven steps to becoming a marine biologist without the degree. Thank you for listening to today's show. I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned. Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and of course, share with your friends. If you want more resources for ocean news, including conservation topics and careers, plus personal insight from me that I just don't share anywhere else, join me at marinebio.life and sign up for email updates. Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community. One person can make a difference. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast.